podcast listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluk. Today it is Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. Coincidentally, it's the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Korean People's Army. But I'm not talking about that today. In fact, I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Lauren Richardson to talk about North Korean victims of the 1945 atomic bombs dropped on Japan and also the politics of victimhood in Japan-DPRK relations. But first, please, a request and reminder to leave a review about this podcast on whatever platform you use and share this episode with everyone you think should hear it or might be interested. What's more, like and subscribe. Secondly, check out nknews.org, where each day my journalist colleagues write the best North Korea-focused journalism. A subscription for a year costs less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund not only this podcast, but also the excellent reporting that my colleagues do every day. Thirdly, follow nknews.org on Twitter and me at JackOZ. Now, to introduce my guest today, Lauren Richardson is a lecturer in the Department of International Relations at Australian National University in Canberra. Her research focuses on the role of non-state actors in shaping diplomatic interactions in Northeast Asia, particularly Japan-Korea relations. She's currently completing a book manuscript provisionally entitled Reshaping Japan-Korea Relations, Transnational Advocacy Networks and the Politics of Redress. Today, we're going to talk about her research on the forgotten victims of the atomic bomb, North Korean Pipokja, and the politics of victimhood in Japan-DPRK relations. You can find her on Twitter at Lauren underscore ANU. Welcome on the show, Lauren. Thanks a lot for having me. So let's start off with the basics. When Hiroshima and Nagasaki were hit by Little Boy and Fat Man on August 6 and 9, 1945 respectively, there was no North Korea yet. All of the Korean Peninsula was part of the Japanese Empire. So how can we talk about North Korean survivors of atomic bombs? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and it's actually quite a complicated history. But there were obviously a lot of Koreans in Japan under colonial rule, okay? And they were essentially Japanese imperial subjects at the time. So they weren't even necessarily Korean at the time, but people of Korean ethnicity. And a lot of them... They were all over Japan, okay, under different circumstances, but quite a significant number were in um, doing forced labor in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in many of the... The big factories there? Yeah, a lot of factories. And if you look at where the atomic bomb was dropped in Nagasaki, the Urakami Valley, there was uh, was right in the middle um, Mm. of a whole lot of factories. So therefore, we did see that a number of Koreans became victims of those attacks. Roughly 40,000 died mm-hmm. um, either, you know, that day, the, the day the bombs were dropped or in the years following that, and about 30,000 survived. And of course, then the Japanese government um, in the post-war period and also the United States under the Japanese occupation or the occupation of Japan encouraged many of the Koreans to return to the peninsula. Mm-hmm. Late, late, later, the Red Cross was involved in that as well and various other organizations. So by then, the Korean Peninsula was divided. Mm. Um, so it meant that we did see roughly 2,000 survivors of the A-bombs end up in North Korea. Now they're North Korean. Right. And the rest of them, about 20, 21,000 moved to South Korea, right? Yeah. So you had a lot, a lot of people who had survived the bombs here in South Korea and then a, a, a minority of them living in North Korea. Exactly. And these are the focus of your research. Right. Right. Briefly, because we're going to get into the stories a bit more, but briefly, who was Yi Shilgun and what's his role in the story? He's a, a really interesting man, um, someone who I interviewed twice in Hiroshima. We had lunch at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum on two occasions um, where I conducted those interviews. You know, for for the first part of his life, I think there was nothing... Was he born in Japan? He was born in Japan, in okay. Yamaguchi Prefecture. His Where's parents, um, it's adjacent to Hiroshima. Got it. So his parents had were from the southern half of the Korean Peninsula. So he really had no connection with today's North Korea. That's true with a lot of the, uh, the Zainichi exactly. Koreans, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and so he was born in Japan. And throughout the war, World War II, he was sort of, you know, indoctrinated through the, the Japanese education system and actually, you know, wanted to serve the emperor in some way. He thought he might, you know, eventually join some military effort. But then, of course... Mm, he saw himself as a loyal Japanese yeah, subject. exactly. Yeah. But then, of course... Japan surrendered, Mm. the atomic bombs were dropped. He was actually in Kobe um, selling 
black market rice the day the bomb was dropped. And Kobe f- is how far from Hiroshima? It's not far at all. I don't know the exact distance, but right. it's very close. But was he directly affected by the bomb? Well, the day after, he mm-hmm. was taking a train back to his home in Yamaguchi, which required him to go through Hiroshima. Ah. And it may be hard to believe by today's standards where news travels very fast, mm. but no one necessarily knew outside of Hiroshima that an atomic bomb had been dropped, even in Hiroshima, okay? This wasn't news that spread quickly. A lot of people didn't know what had happened. They thought it was just a big bomb. Mm. So he took the train and when it arrived, when it sort of got into towards the center of Hiroshima, it stopped and everyone was ordered to get off, saying that there had been a large-scale air raid. So he walked through Hiroshima unwittingly absorbing copious amounts of radiation, like many other people, eventually hitched a ride home with a truck driver. Mm -hmm. So he'd already walked through Hiroshima for two hours, and by the time he was home, he was extremely sick. So he became an A-bomb victim. Ah. He then joined in all these movements that were sort of ethnic Korean movements that proliferated after Japan's defeat, many of which were quite sympathetic to North Korea. He joined in that. And up to this point, there was nothing really unique about him because many Koreans found themselves A-bomb victims. Many of them joined these movements. But where he and, and he was also arrested for those activities mm-hmm. and ended up um, becoming a fugitive. And again, nothing particularly unique here. A lot of Koreans were arrested under the US-led occupation of Japan. But what happened... He was arrested for being a, a sort of an agitator, a rabble-rouser. Yeah, exactly. They were considered... Disturbing the peace. Yeah, they were considered security threats. Mm. Okay? They were very agitated. They'd been oppressed and suffered all kinds of discriminations during the war. So they were quite... Yeah. I mean, the US even kept some Koreans laboring, you know, mm. in mind. So there was a lot of agitation. And so then, I mean, it was sort of unique that he became a fugitive. He didn't go straight to jail. And he served a much longer jail sentence than was normal, eight years. That is quite long. Do, do, we know, do you know what his, cha- his crime was that he was convicted of? Yeah, so initially he was arrested just for scattering these handbills that mm. criticize the role of the U.S. in the Korean War. Ah. And actually, it's quite interesting because he'd picked up radio broadcasts from North Korea with a few of his friends, and they actually wrote them on that. They translated them into Japanese, wrote them onto handbills, printed them. So said something to the effect of America's war is unjust and uh-huh. America's forced the Communist Party underground and this Basically kind of thing. Basically following the North Korean line that America was the uh, yeah. the originator exactly. of, the, of the Korean yeah. War. Yeah. So anyway, he was initially arrested for that, which was illegal at the time. Mm. But when he was finally recaptured, he was arrested on roughly four charges. So one was the initial one. The second was having been a fugitive. Mm. The third was having taken on a fake name. And the fourth was um, having violated the alien registration law in Japan, some aspect of it. So yeah. But where he became a unique, very unique figure is when he came out of jail and became an international anti-nuclear activist. Right. So he was traveling all over the world to anti-nuclear rallies, which was very hard for someone like him who had North Korea affiliated nationality, which wasn't a proper citizenship in Japan, made it hard to get visas. So he was quite a major international anti-nuke activist. Okay, I want to come back to that. In your uh, paper that you uh, have coming out on on March 1st, I was excited to see a mention of the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students held in Pyongyang in 1989. (laughs) Long-time listeners of this podcast will remember my fascination with that event. I've done a number of episodes about it. And Yi Shilgun was, uh, in 1989, neither a youth nor a student. In fact, he was already 60 having been born in 1929, yet he was invited by the North Korean government to be there for that World Festival of Youth and Students. Why? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I couldn't mention this in the article. I had to, because of word constraints, leave out a lot of details. But he had actually been to Pyongyang the year before just for a brief visit. He was just curious to check the place out. He was coming back from Moscow. Was that his first trip to (laughs) North Korea in his life? Yes, as I understand. Was his first trip to either Korea in his life, I I guess? from what he told me in the interviews, that he might have left things out, but yeah, from okay. uh, he probably had been to so South Korea. So close to 60, he's been born in Japan, and this is his, his first visit to Pyongyang, at least. Right. Right. Yeah. So then they obviously would have known about him, and mm-hmm. we also know at this time, it was kind of a, a turning point in North Korea, obviously, the 
you know, Eastern Bloc was collapsing. Mm. North Korea was very much reaching out to these sort of people in Japan that had Korean ethnicity, were sort of affiliated with North Korean nationality. And also, we can consider it from the North Korean government's perspective, he would have really fitted very well with the themes of the, the festival, which was right. anti-imperialism. I mean, if you look at his background, he just really been someone who had just, I guess, been subject to all kinds of oppression and victimization and he'd really fought back. Mm. You'd think that someone who'd been locked in jail for eight years might just sort of abandon their activist course. Right. But he just changed course and he thought, you know, no, I'm, I'm going to pursue my activism differently. So I think that they would have also been thinking about the fact that at the time, I mean, North Korea had been developing nuclear weapons, I think, for some time. Mm. But it, wow. was, it was when they were coming under international pressure, particularly from the U.S. at that juncture. That's when it, you know, the cat was really out of the bag. Mm. And I think having someone there to speak about, you know, the U.S. nuclear attacks, I think, would have supported their, right. their objectives in many ways. Now, as you say, and as you wrote in your paper, and as all indications that I've seen, are b that by 1989, North Korea's leadership was already very much committed to the path of developing its own nuclear arsenal. Right. It already had, it was building a nuclear reprocessing plant in Yongbyon, which would extract the weapons-grade plutonium from the spent fuel rods, which can then be used as a, as a warhead. Uh, it's very interesting then at the time that they would invite a man to come and tell people how harmful nuclear weapons are when they're used in war. Does that strike you as an act of bad faith by the North Korean government? Yeah, I actually had a lot of trouble making these connections myself because, as I also explain in the article, all the people that supported Lee Shulgun's cause were nuclear abolitionists and they, right. they got incredible access in North Korea. We can talk about that later, but it's actually, it seems illogical and a bit ironic but when you think about it it's extremely logical because North Korea at least the way they were trying to you know legitimize this pursuit of nuclear weapons was that the, the U.S. was a nuclear threat mm -hmm. right and there's a big difference between developing nuclear weapons and actually detonating them in a war you know situation right I think in their mind there's a huge gap there and so having someone who was sort of by this stage, you know, quite famous, well, he always spoke about the atomic bombs in graphic detail, what, what he'd witnessed in mm, Hiroshima, mm. not just on the world stage, but he always did this in schools in Hiroshima, he spent uh, his whole life going yep. around spreading this message and he felt was very effective to talk in detail about the, the carnage that he saw. Was he a true believer in nuclear disarmament? Oh, totally. He was anti-nuclear to the core, right? So how did he feel about North Korea's pursuit of its own nuclear arsenal? It's, it's a good question. He was very much against it, and, and this is on record. You can see um, there's several interviews he's done with the media. I think he was very good with courting the media and, mm -hmm. you know, contacting them and saying, I'm going to North Korea, you might want to speak to me. Right. Um, but he, for example, had to cancel his trip when North Korea did the nuclear test. He 2006, was, the yeah, first one. He mm. was in Osaka ready to go and he was so disappointed and he said it just blew everything up, literally, for uh, him, his plans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think what he said, and I think this also helps us to understand why he and his associates got such good access in, in North Korea, was he, he was of the belief if you... I mean, if, if you look at a lot of the discourse on North Korea's nuclear weapons, particularly in the United States, it just very much frames North Korea as the only threat. The mm -hmm. U.S. is kind of through extended deterrence, you know, playing a security role. But from the perspective of, of an A-bomb survivor, that's preposterous that the U.S. nuclear arsenal is, is keeping the world safe or keeping the region safe. So he... I note that he did say once to the media, he said, when they clearly asked him a similar question, mm -hmm. and he said, are we supposed to believe that North Korea's nuclear weapons are evil and the United States' weapons are sweet? <laughs> he used that word. Mm. And I think that sort of gets a sense, I mean, indicates, you know, his position on it. Yeah, he's against nuclear weapons, but his primary objective was really addressing the A-bomb survivors, of which he was one. You know, he had a lot of sympathy for them, that they'd been abandoned in North Korea. Yeah, so tell us how his role uh, developed and changed over time from that of a simple anti-nuclear activist to a, a person whose mission is to help specifically North Korean A-bomb survivors, or uh, pipokcha, as the term is in Korean. Right, so he did 
have a history of advocating for Korean victims who'd stayed behind in Japan. Mm-hmm. Okay, he combined that from you know early on with his broader anti-nuclear objectives that he was pursuing on the world stage. And when he went to North Korea for the the festival, and we talked about, he was approached at his hotel by some of the victims. Obviously, they hadn't approached him the previous year because they wouldn't have known he was coming. Right. Because there was a lot of publicity about the event. When I asked Ishukun, I said, how did they know you were there? He said, through the mass media. Hmm. They heard about him coming to talk about the bombs. So they all approached him at the hotel and said, we're in a lot of trouble. And so when he saw at that point, he'd, he'd always been thinking of Koreans in Japan as, as sort of really being in, in the worst position because they weren't getting the same attention as the Japanese A-bomb victims. But then he saw that the North Koreans were sort of not even on the A-bomb victim hierarchy. They'd mm. just been abandoned. So he realized they were in a very unique predicament. And obviously, if you're someone who lives in Japan like him and you have the the aim of helping them, I mean, that's a very lofty aim. That's going to be very difficult. So he decided he needs to focus exclusively on that issue in terms of A-bomb victims. But he he still pursued his other anti-nuclear activism from then on. It seems like it would be almost impossible for North Korean A-bomb victims to seek any redress from Japan when the DPRK in Japan do not have to this day, do not have diplomatic relations. Right, yeah, they've had a terrible time because, I mean, there is a very complex historical and legal and political dimension to the issue of A-bomb victims. Usually when I've presented this research, the question I always get is, why isn't the United States responsible Mm. for this? But Mm -hmm. it really just comes down to the legal strategy pursued by South Korean A-bomb victims, that they pursued litigation against the Japanese government. And as a result of that litigation, which they, they largely were very successful. The Supreme Court in Japan ruled that there should be no nationality clause in Japan's domestic relief law, mm-hmm. which provided financial support to A-bomb victims in Japan. And this as the law uh, first passed in 1957. Yeah, and then there were amendments to that. So basically, as a result of that, it became possible for all A-bomb victims around the world to receive the payments from Japan if they become certified as victims. Mm. And this certification process came to be handled overseas through Japan's embassies, consulates. Um, But of course, there is no embassy consulate in in North Korea. So that meant they were sort of in a kind of loophole. So um, it meant they're the only A-bomb victims in the world, the only ethnic group that cannot get official redress. So the activists... Ishogun and and his many supporters that sort of came forward in Japan realized that they weren't going to get anything probably from the Japanese government. They weren't getting anything from the North Korean government. So they took it upon themselves. Let me interrupt there. So you write in your paper that, yeah, Tokyo and Pyongyang were initially reluctant to acknowledge that A-bomb survivors existed in North Korea. So both sides. Why is this? And even the Japan-based Chosen Soren organization wasn't helpful. Why? Yeah, it's hard to say about, you know, Chongyun, why they didn't get involved. I can only speculate about that. I didn't interview them. I mean, if you look at South Korean A-bomb victims, they've also had a very hard time getting attention. And it was partly because... In South Korea, it was the the atomic bombing was kind of seen as like the atomic bombs were seen as almost like a savior in mm. the sense that they they ended the colonial period and there was very little sympathy for the South Korean A-bomb victims. You know, it was kind of like, well, you were the necessary collateral damage. Right. Because it, it wasn't even in the mid-1960s when Japan and South Korea negotiated their own normalization of relations. This did not get discussed, right? There, were, there was no talking about... Uh, uh, Korean A-bomb victims, or, or comfort women for that matter. Exactly, yes. So they were caught up in that, but they were... And in- is, is that because they were just seen as, as, as necessary collateral damage? That, you know, sorry guys, but, you know, bat sucks to be you, but uh, we've got to keep going. Yeah, it's part of it. It's also because people were thought, you know, no one knew anything about A-bomb-related disease at the time, and they thought they had leprosy, they saw sores on them, mm. and so steered clear of them. There's also the fact that, I mean, the A-bomb victims in South Korea have been in even more of a blind spot than the comfort women and forced laborers because of the U.S. alliance with South Korea, simply. There's all these structures that put certain categories of victims in in more of a blind spot. So Coming back to the U.S. issue, so the reason why Japan is the target of redress rather than the United States, you say, is, is because basically that's the legal strategy that was followed by uh, victims here in South Korea that they thought, well, 
Japan has a law from 1957 saying that we're responsible for helping victims. The US does not. It would be far more expensive to try and litigate this through the US courts, so let's do it in Japan. Is that more of sort exactly. of practical reasons rather than a moral reason yeah, or any other reason? Yeah, they were totally just pragmatic reasons. And another reason is that they knew they had a whole support network of activists in Japan mm-hmm. who were willing to facilitate that litigation process. So Were they largely or comp- that, that support group in Japan, are they all ethnic Koreans? or are No, they ja- yeah, many Japanese. Mm-hmm. It's a mix of both. But for example, um, several Japanese lawyers worked pro bono to mm-hmm. represent them. Many ethnic Koreans acted as interpreters, so they wouldn't have to pay for any of right. this. And also they engaged in fundraising to support their travel costs. But mm. they had no such network in the United States. Right. And it's a more expensive journey as well and a longer journey, yeah. Exactly. When did South Korean victims start uh, getting some redress from Japan? It took a long time. So they started to very gradually mobilize. It's interesting when you read about this, even before the 1965 treaty, there was Mm -hmm. a couple of Avon victims who met in Myeongdong. You know, just kind of said, oh, where were you in Japan? Yeah, I was in Hiroshima. Me too. Are you an Avon victim? Me too. And just sort of, you know, started to get a bit organized. They started to track down other survivors, make lists. And then was actually Mindan, the organization in Japan that, you know, is affiliated with South Korea that Mm. played a, a leading role in bringing that to the attention of the Korean government hmm. in the 1960s, but just before normalization. Okay. Um, but the issue, so the South Korean government knew about it. Yeah. They knew they had a lot of victims, but it didn't come up in the normalization negotiations. Um, I think very much because the US was in the background of those mm. negotiations and they just kind of thought, we don't want to, you know, make trouble with this issue by raising it. So they were in trouble and many of the hospitals in South Korea didn't know how to treat them and they Mm -hmm. were coming out sicker from hospitalization. So it was really when this litigation began in the 1970s, late 1970s, when they started to win, that things started to move. But even then, initially, as a result of the litigation, they'd have to come to Japan to be certified. And many of them didn't want to because it's like revisiting the site of trauma. And also they were ill, many of them, and or couldn't afford it. So then following further litigation, they did at some point start getting some money from the South Korean government and, you know, activists in Japan fundraised for them, also sent money. But it, it really hasn't wasn't till about the 1980s and 90s that many of them started to get regular sort of payments. And that meant that they were upset that people in Japan have been getting payments for decades, decades and yeah. they wanted back pay. Mm. So they still feel that they've never been treated equally. Now, for the North Korean victims, everything began, as you said, with uh, Lee Shilgun's visit to Pyongyang in 1989. So they, they were even later than the South yeah. Koreans. Was he incorporating what had happened in South Korea in his own, like, was he sort of taking lessons from how the South Korean A-bomb victims had approached things to uh, to use in his own quest to help North Korean victims? Absolutely. I think that, I mean, it's, it's interesting in terms of the timing that we tend to, you know, think that South Korea's democratization and, and things like that were, were obviously critical to many of the victims, you know, colonial victims in, in South Korea and normalization to getting redress. And you would think that in the case of North Korea, where we haven't seen these kind of tra- transitions, that they would have had no hope. But it's interesting how other transitions, like the end of the Cold War, sort of, and, and also, ironically, North Korea's pursuit of nuclear weapons made the regime permeable to anti-nuclear mm. activism, right, and to, to this issue coming up on the agenda. I think that's interesting. But yes, absolutely. I think, you know, Ishugun was just so angry about the, the fact that Japanese victims were always far ahead of mm. Koreans of I mean, he wasn't angry with Japanese victims, but at the government in Japan for prioritizing them in the the redress process. And obviously, Ishugun and the people that supported him were aware that other victims were getting payments and they could use that as leverage to the Japanese government and use the Supreme Court ruling in their meetings with Japanese officials. And I think if they didn't have that basis, they, they may not have gotten any response from the Japanese government. So certainly that was the premise of their, their activities. Okay. So then tell us a bit about how Ishilgun and his, his allies, how they worked to help North Korean victims and also about the unique access that you say that they had in North Korea. Yeah, so I should say that, you know, who who these allies were, there there weren't many of them. As you can imagine, 
it would be pretty daunting to be engaged in redress efforts for people, A-bomb survivors, you know, living yep. in North Korea. Obviously, I didn't realise how daunting that would be until I put myself in their shoes and thought, if I had the opportunity to go to North Korea to be involved in this issue, an issue I care about a lot and having researched it, I, I'd probably be too scared, you know. Uh-huh. I'd be worried about what's going to happen <laughs> when yep, I'm yep. there. You know, North Korea is developing nuclear weapons. The Japanese government is you know, cracking down on, on North Korea and, and they're going there against sort of the government policy often, you yeah. know, and, and engaging when there's a lot of anti-North Korean sentiment in Japan. So the way they went about it was kind of very diplomatically. They would set up meetings with Japanese officials and Ishogun had become a very sort of politically savvy person. Mm. He was very... He's come a long way from uh, passing out those handwritten handbills in 1950, right? right? Yeah, like even if you Google him, right, and and you go to Google Images, you'll see him rubbing shoulders with Ban Ki-moon at UN headquarters in New York. He, he, He went far, you know, with his... His sort of activism, it was his dream to be involved in non-proliferation dialogues mm. and, and things like that. So he was politically ambitious. He had very good communication skills, very good people skills. And I noticed when I met him, he established a rapport with me very quickly. And I got a sense from that of how he may have worked with officials. Yeah. And so he had already made contacts with fairly prominent Japanese politicians because of his engagement with North Korea, which really began before he started engaging with Japanese officials. And oh. some of the sort of more pro-North Korea, I don't know if pro-North Korea is the right word, but the the Japanese um, politicians who were open to things like f- giving food aid to North mm. Korea were interested in him. So he forged relations with them and using those relations was able to get an audience with Japanese Prime Minister at the time, Obuchi Keizo. And I find this particularly interesting. I teach a course on the role of non-state actors in diplomacy. And it's, it's quite interesting when you think of traditional diplomacy, the, the sort of course in Japan is you graduate from University of Tokyo, then you pass the foreign ministry exam and you work your way up. But then you've got someone like him mm. who never went to university, spent a lot of time in jail. Mm honed his skills as an activist and then ends up in the same office, you know, <laughs> finds a, a pathway to, to get involved in a diplomatic issue, what is supposed to be a diplomatic issue and eventually was a diplomatic issue. Mm. And yeah, they're, so he's they're a, in the same meeting. He's a citizen, he was a citizen, because he's deceased now, but he's a, he was a citizen diplomat. Exactly, yeah, right. that's how I see it, because he was carrying out roles that would traditionally be, you know, conducted by diplomats, things like reporting, negotiation. So, yeah, they, they didn't sort of protest against the Japanese government. They negotiated with them and they made their case. They framed the issue as victims who were basically in a very distressed state in, in North Korea. And he'd been able to attest to that, um, having, you know, been there and, and meeting them in person. And Japanese officials were open to um, engaging with him on this issue and his associates when they were interested in normalizing relations with North Korea. They saw this as the kind of low-hanging fruit. Mm. We can, you know, warm up the relationship by perhaps making concessions on this. And then in North Korea, yeah, so they they set up an organization in Hiroshima and it became a kind of channel of communication with North Korea. North Korea reciprocated by setting up their own advocacy advocacy organizations and those two organizations would invite delegations from each country to the other country right and they would do fact finding together and and track down the victims and and also medical training too right that right. was i was interested to learn, learn about that Tell and us about it, it's quite interesting so yeah you know eventually the japan sort of doctors association got involved in these meetings and they sent doctors to north korea to train their medical practitioners in how to treat A-bomb-related disease. Mm. And then North Korea also allowed some delegations of radiologists to come to Japan for training. That in itself is really quite significant because if you look at the case of South Korea, after this issue of South Korean A-bomb victims really became sort of politicized to some extent, doctors in Japan, or I think it was the Japanese government, offered to send doctors in Japan to help them treat the victims. And at first, the South Korean government said, no, thank you. you mm. know, they were decolonizing and obviously, you know, taking doctors <laughs> from Japan, accepting them is kind right. of an admission that was, we sort of have inferior medical mm. capabilities. So I think it's quite significant that North Korea 
was willing to take that help, yeah. you know, f- from them. And if you look at this interesting documentary that was filmed by one uh, of these activists in Japan, he went to North Korea more than 43 times. This is uh, Ito Takashi, right? Yeah, fascinating Who, guy. He had an unusual uh, exhibition of photos of these uh, pipokja, these uh, right. atomic bomb survivors, that the exhibition was both in Japan and in North Korea uh, just two years ago in 2021. Yeah. So t- tell us a, bit, a little bit about his work. Yeah, he, he's another interesting guy and this is something I think is an avenue for further research because I couldn't write a lot about him in the article, but he is someone who has just been interested in issues of Korean colonial victims, both North and South, and he especially focused on the North Koreans. He was... Um, he went to Pyongyang first, I think it was 1991, 92, so after Lee gun had brought this issue to light mm-hmm. in Japan. And he was able to eventually start film. First he was just taking photographs of them and he, he has an exhibition that he, he's actually been showcasing it all over the world. He's been going many ah. places. He spends a lot of time in South Korea, also is involved with comfort women victims and mm. things. And so he's... a objective, broad objective, is to help normalize North Korean people in Japan and victims. So he has an exhibition on the people of Pyongyang just to show that, you know, life in Pyongyang can be, you know, quite normal. And and certainly when you watch his, he eventually, um, after the turn of the century, filmed a documentary on the North Korean A-bomb victims, which is called Hiroshima Pyongyang, the discarded victims of the atomic bomb. And it's very interesting. I mean, it's in Korean and Japanese. I don't think it, it has subtitles. The The version I have doesn't have any subtitles. Mm. But, I mean, even if you just watch it, it's quite remarkable the level of access he was given. He follows them everywhere, to hospital. He's in their home, you know, while they're washing dishes, having dinner with them. And it, it foc- his documentary focuses on a woman, a North Korean woman, who was three years old when she was irradiated in Hiroshima. And her mother stayed behind in Japan. So oh. they're separated. Wow. And when she's talking about the atomic bombing, obviously she looks very aggrieved and mm. it's caused a lot of health problems for her. And But the part where she gets really emotional is when she's talking about Japan's sanctions towards North Korea because it mm. made it impossible for her to reach out to her mum when her mum was dying. Ah. So amazingly, this activist, Ito Takashi, he took it upon himself to shuttle back and forward mm-hmm. between the mum and daughter to record goodbye messages, wow. basically, so she could farewell her mother on her deathbed. So, yeah, really um, amazing activist, I think, quite impressive. So overall, what's been the uh, the result of this process? Have North Korean victims received compensation or redress from the Japanese government or has it been privately funded or ha- how's it worked? It's mostly been funded through the activists who were involved. So anyone who's studied um, Japan's sort of foreign policy toward colonial victims writ large would be aware of the fact that Japan's very reluctant to ever pay money from its government coffers directly to victims. Mm-hmm. Okay? It tends to want to do that through the, the government, like through the South Korean government, which is upsetting for the victims because they, they want the money, you know, they want it to symbolise legal compensation as a way to, to really, you know, demonstrate that Japan violated their rights and Japan's never done that. But in the case of North Korea, Japan's been reluctant for those reasons but also other reasons because of, the domestic audience in Japan is very anti-North Korean. Mm -hmm. And as we know, they don't want Japanese government sort of making any sympathetic, what look like sympathetic gestures until the abduction issue is resolved, which I think most people know is it's probably not likely to be resolved. So that means they've missed out. And from what I understand from the activists, from my interviews, the Japanese government's official position is currently that If the North Koreans apply for the Atomic Bomb Victim Handbook, which is the certification documents, we'll give it to them. But the activists think that's ridiculous because they have no way of applying for that. Mm. They can't come to Japan now because of the sanctions. They can't even, you know, send letters. And, the, and North Koreans can't get on, online and, and do it that They can't get online. There's no embassy there. And also, it's a very complicated process to become certified as a victim. You need witnesses mm. who were there at the time. Many ah. of them are now deceased. Right. So it's, it's impossible. Yeah. You mentioned just a minute ago about uh, the fact that the Japanese government doesn't like to make these payments official. Yeah. Um, I'm just, it reminded me of the situation with the comfort women. So how does this issue fit in the overall framework of Japan-Korea relations and the comfort women issue? Yeah, so... And and forced laborers, for that matter. 
Yeah, so what we've seen is there's been a lot of activists mobilised around the different categories of victims. Obviously, the comfort women issue has, has kind of had the most attention and, and been given the most focus. I think your listeners would be most familiar with that. But what we see is all of the activists, yeah, they, they tend to have the aim, very similar aim, of getting official compensation for the victims, official apologies, things like that. But none of them have really achieved, none of the activists have really achieved their highest objectives. But this isn't to say they haven't been successful. They have had a a great deal of success. Mm -hmm. Okay, so obviously the issue for comfort women is that they don't exactly have the form of compensation that they ideally wanted, which was money paid directly from Japanese government coffers to the victims, you know, personally, which would have been the ideal scenario. They don't have that. And in the case of the North Koreans, they don't have any official payments at all. Ironically, the North Korean government has been much more forthcoming than the Japanese government in giving sort of concessions to the victims. Um, What kind of concessions are we talking about? So basically, priority medical access, Mm -hmm. which is still... I mean, judging from the documentary I watched, it, it's still not ideal. Mm. Um, they still, you know, don't feel that they have very good medical care and also free public transport access. And yeah, just a, a few small things like that. And recognition. We, we talked before about recognition. Governments only tend to recognize victims when it's in their interests. I mean, the, yeah, you, you've it took already, a long yeah, time. You've, you've preempted <laughs> my, my next question, which is why is it in North Korea's uh, in, North, in the North Korean state's interest to recognize victims and, and, you know, I mean, look, there are, as you'll know from listening to this podcast and reading about North Korea, that there's a lot of uh, different groups uh, who are active in human rights areas. Uh, and, you know, it's not in the North Korean government's interest to recognize, for example, people in political prison camps. So why in this area does it align with North Korean state interest? And, and how does that fit in the framework of North Korea's desire to develop its own nuclear arsenal and be developed, be recognized as a nuclear power? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And this is something I find students get a bit puzzled about when I've given lectures on this. And when you think about it from the North Korean government's perspective, in the context of them developing nuclear weapons, which, you know, most countries in the interna- international system, you know, view their nuclear program as illegal, illegitimate, they're looking for ways, creative ways to to legitimize it, even if just for domestic purposes. Obviously, the KCNA has mentioned this A-bomb victim issue several times and pressured Japan to, to pay the victims. But I think it's mostly been for domestic purposes in that context of North Korea developing nuclear weapons, which has seen it come under constant criticism from you know, the United States, Japan, South Korea, as well as various other countries, uh, the UN as well. Mm-hmm. In that context, the atomic bomb survivors there who are victims of US nuclear attacks kind of take on the, the status of heroes mm. you know it's like you're the the veterans <laughs> almost that right. survived this horrific attack this is why we need nuclear weapons for our own deterrent purposes yep. okay because i think a lot of scholars and analysts who look at the roots of north korea's um, nuclear weapons development they they sort of take it back to the korean war okay when North Korea was leveled by U.S. incendiary bombing. But uh, what I've sort of seen from this research is the North Korean government has also made a kind of conceptual connection with the U.S. atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as well, even though that may not have been the point where they decided. To right. develop. In the you know more recent context, they've decided to make a con- conceptual connection. And I think it may surprise some people to know that 75% of Pyongyang was leveled in the Korean War and only 67% of Hiroshima. Mm. You know? So there, And if you look at the distance between those two cities, I think it's roughly like Melbourne to Sydney. Like wow. They're close. Yeah. You know? So North Korea has found it useful to embrace this issue. And I also mentioned in the article that you see some parallels between how North Korea speaks of the U.S. 1945 atomic bombings and also how the activists speak about it. From their perspective, that was a crime against humanity. Um, we always hear North Korea you know, referring to both the U.S. and also South Korea's nuclear criminals because mm. of the you know, U.S. 1945 atomic bombings, also because of the U.S. nuclear umbrella and um, the exercises they conduct. So it's, I kind of realized that those positions are not antithetical 
at all. In fact, they're kind of mutually reinforcing. I don't think the activists in any way were purposely trying to, you know, align with North Korea's position. But I think from the North Korean government's perspective, they would have thought, yeah, these these people, you know, have have a similar kind of worldview. Right. And and that's useful to us. Exactly. Yeah. And I think one thing we know about North Korea is they would not do anything like this unless it was very strongly in their interests. They mm. had some interest. It's not out of the goodness of <laughs> North Korean government's well, yeah. heart, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded again, back coming back to that 1989 World Festival Youth and Students, you had people, uh, international people from all around the world, marching through the streets of Pyongyang behind anti-nuclear weapons banners, you know, saying we call for no nukes in the world. And meanwhile, up at Yongbyon, at the exact exactly. same time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> So it is confusing, but when you think of the logic, yeah, I think it actually makes a lot of sense. I think there's a kind of seamless connection between that position because, uh, I mean, I, I also mentioned in the article that North Korean government put the word anti-nuclear peace in its advocacy organization mm. that was representing the North Korean A-bomb victims. But as soon as it conducted its nuclear tests, it removed that that ah. clause and Basically, from then on, thought we're still going to use this issue, but mm. we'll talk about the need, you know, for nuclear deterrence. It'll be based on a nuclear deterrence logic. And even the Pibokcha victims changed their position, where uh. previously they'd said, we have neither the will nor the desire to have nuclear weapons in this country. But then they shifted that to say that we need nuclear weapons to defend us against attacks by the United States. So the, the very people who were who became sick from radiation poisoning in Hiroshima and Nagasaki themselves later on after North Korea's first nuclear test said, actually, yeah, we should have nuclear weapons. Yeah. And obviously, I think listeners are going to say, well, that's just indoctrination. And It does feel a bit like that. There, there's a part of that, right? I mean, I, I would say... Certainly if they're speaking publicly. Look, I mean, any, any it's a bit like when you, you see um, the BBC or CNN in, in Beijing and they're trying to talk to a Chinese man on the street and you've got a person in black clothes standing very close listening, you know, to what's being said. And it's a bit like that, that you've got researcher comes in and, or an activist comes in to North Korea and talks to North Korean about how they feel about the nuclear bomb. They, they know that there's another audience there too. Exactly. But also, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, when I thought about this, I also thought if you put your, yourself in the shoes of a North Korean A-bomb victim, they've been subject to US nuclear attacks, they survive it. They're the only victims in the world that have really had no specific apology from any high-level official. The U.S. is unapologetic about that, at least towards them, and they've never received any compensation. They're the only victims in the world. Plus, we know Trump was going to um, was thinking about very seriously launching a preemptive strike on North Korea. You could kind of sense why they actually might, on some level, believe the U.S. is a threat to them still. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, but yeah, there is that indoctrination for sure. They're, they're mirroring the government's position, that's for sure. Now, without getting too theoretical, help us to understand what polylateral diplomacy and polylateral non-state engagement is or are, and what's its role in this story? Yeah, so this was a concept developed by my former head of department, incidentally, Jeff Wiseman, um, who now works in, in the US. And basically, when it comes to diplomacy, um, he argues that these three main types okay the first is bilateral diplomacy (laughs) multilateral diplomacy I think your listeners will know what they entail Um, the third he argues is polylateral diplomacy and that's when non-state actors really come in and play a major role in the diplomatic process Mm -hmm. so from his definition it has to involve at least one state actor and also engagement with at least one sort of non-state actor, which can be individuals or or some organization or a body in which there's an expectation that it's going to be quite a systematic relationship. It's not just a, a one-off sort of encounter. Um, where they, so it has to be ongoing. Yeah, for, for at least, you know, um, some period where mm-hmm. they, they are going to work together on a certain issue. And I thought it's particularly fitting in this case because... You know, these activists were definitely working in a diplomatic space, okay? They weren't using normal activist tactics that we've seen um, in relation to the South Korean victims, which is protesting outside embassies. Right. And you see 
there's such a contrast between you know, like the Japanese embassy here, which always looks very fortified when mm-hmm. these all comfort women activists out at the and front. And today is Wednesday. Wednesday right. is the yeah, day that they go happening. out there and protest. Yeah, <laughs> I should go and have a look. But you compare that to what was going on in North Korea. You you see in the documentary that I mentioned before, there's a scene where Lee Shogun and his associates are at like a round table in North Korea. They look very official, mm. clearly with officials, all right. wearing suits. And this was very much a kind of a diplomatic space that they were operating in and and a sort of diplomatic role that they were using. And in terms of the policy implications of this issue, I think there are some interesting ones because Mm. if you think about it, all these governments, US government in particular, the South Korean government, they're at their wits' end with North Korea. We're right, talking, with, right? About the, uh, the nuclear The nuclear program. issue. Yeah. They've tried bilateral diplomacy, yep. summit diplomacy, right? And yep. then they've tried multilateral, six, six party, party talks, talks yeah. failed. Why not use these people who have access there and, and who have authority to speak on nuclear matters and who, you know, have gone there? And I think, I mean, it, it may sound a bit preposterous, but I think. When you look at other non-state actors like Dennis Rodman, mm-hmm. a lot of people sort of ridiculed the fact that U.S. media was interviewing him before, you know, the Trump-Kim summit. But mm. I really think that people like that, they, they do play a role in sort of setting the scene for these, in framing it and easing tensions before these <laughs> state-level things happen. So I would have thought that Ishilgun has now sadly passed away, but I would have thought the Japanese government should have used that connection. Mm. They had a very strong connection, which saw him go there at least 20 times. He has enormous authority there to speak on nuclear matters as an atomic bomb survivor. But the problem is most foreign ministries, particularly the Japanese one, is very conservative. And I really think that they haven't learned how to harness the role of these kind of non-state actors who don't have the sort of credentials they they look for, you know, official credentials, expertise, PhDs. Um, what about the recently deceased uh, Japanese politician who was formerly a professional wrestler, Antonio Inoki, who mm. also did a lot of this uh, citizen diplomacy back and forth between North Korea and Japan? Does does he figure? Does he come up? Did he know Ishilgun? Did they talk? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Yeah, I think they were working on quite yeah separate separate issues. But yeah. they uh, but there was an, an overlap there in the area of uh, of the possibility of normalisation of relations between right. Japan and North yeah. Korea, which was derailed by the uh, the, the issue of, of uh, Japanese people being abducted to North Korea in the 1970s and 80s, right? Right. Yeah. So as far as I know, they didn't know each other. But I think, yeah, if if you ask anyone to characterize Japan-North Korea relations today, they'd probably say there is no relationship. They're at an impasse. But what I found interesting about this issue is that there's all kinds of interactions going on, Mm. not just with the non-state actor level in Japan, but also members of the Social Democratic Party of Japan were heavily involved. Parties that are not in power, you know, they're backing these activists and sending. So there are often active like or engagements happening behind the scenes that are actually quite fascinating and I think Japan, the US, South Korea should be exploring every I think avenue at mm. the moment and I actually think the North Korean government was much more sophisticated in the way that it made use of these activists mm. than say the Japanese government was. It's interesting. You also use a phrase in your paper non-confrontational pressure tactics. And mm-hmm. What does that mean and how are they used in the case of helping the North Korean A-bomb victims by activists like Yi Shilgun? Yeah, so I'll speak first about confrontational pressure tactics. By that, I mean more like protests, mm. things like if the sort of tactics we see in South Korea, like constructing statues outside of Japan's diplomatic missions. Mm-hmm. Those things <laughs> cause no end of pain for the Japanese government, which is why they're considered so effective right. from the activist perspective. But if you think of the South Koreans, right, the biggest obstacle they've faced is the normalization agreement, right? Because that was all stitched up, their victimhood, without them having a part in it right. through that process. So they've really been left with no choice but to adopt that confrontational practice because they're trying to undo an agreement, right? They're trying to undermine it. That's the only way they they feel that they've been able to get Japan to move and also the South Korean government to move. But with the North Korean case, there is no normalization. There's no formal arrangement for sorting these issues out. So therefore, they had to make a channel. They had to make a connection yeah. where there was none. 
And the only way they could feasibly do that was to not sort of confront the governments in because both governments would have had no interest, I think, in, in dealing with them. In, I mean, they really had, there's no audience, you know, watching them in, in how they deal with this. There's probably about 10 people in the world with their eyes on this issue. Right. You know, there's no audience cost if they yeah. abandon it. Um, so therefore, they need, it needs to be in their interests. So it really came down to how the activists could articulate that interest. And so in terms of non-confrontational pressure tactics, they were pressuring them, but through negotiation. Just how a diplomat would pressure another state, like even North Korea. not going to use sanctions, but they don't have that sort of power. But certainly using negotiation and also speaking to the press. Okay, so they would clearly call the Japanese press and they would inform the press about Mm. what Japan's position was and say, well, that's absurd. You know, North Korea's asked for a hospital for its A-bomb victims and your Japanese officials have come back saying, oh, we're worried that that would be repurposed for, you know, military. Right, could be a dual-use hospital. Yeah. (laughs) And so the activists said to the press, that's absurd, you know. Right. So this is not really confrontational. So there's a... There was a little bit of con. I mean, once you involve the media, there's a little bit of confrontation there, isn't there? I I guess so. I guess it's sort of adding a bit of normative pressure. Right. I think I'm glad they did that because it means there is a record, some record of Mm. what actually happened. Right, because it was hard for you doing this research. very hard, yeah. You couldn't get access to North Korean government people, Japanese government people, so you had to go through... You had to use a lot of media reporting in there. Yeah, like I contacted several of the Social Democratic Party members who were involved, but... Had trouble. With uh, that. I did speak to a former Social Democratic Party member in the end. Trying to draw uh, some lessons out of this, I wonder, coming back to your idea that this was such a, I don't want to say a small issue because that trivialises it, but, but that the audience was small. There weren't many people who knew about this issue of, of North Korean A-bomb victims and so there weren't many people invested in or who would lose from uh, the success or failure of this discussion. Right. And does that mean that there's a constraint there on the possibility of this uh, polylateral diplomacy in that it has to be kept to issues that most people are not aware of? I mean, if you tried to to use that same tactic with, say, North Korean denuclearization, there's a lot more people um, who have things, there's a lot more stakeholders. Does that, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, actually, it can be used for all kinds of issues in all kinds of purposes. And actually, the same concept has come under different names in the diplomatic studies literature. Some people call it multi-stakeholder diplomacy. Ah. There's one other name. It's called um, catalytic diplomacy. So Mm. it kind of refers to the sort of catalytic processes that happen at the interface of non-state actors and and government actors coming together. And that certainly was the case. It's like North Korean government invites Ishil Gunova. He goes there and then set off this catalytic process. But actually, in the polylateral diplomacy literature, there has been an assumption, not just in Jeff Wiseman's work, but other scholars too, that authoritarian governments are unlikely to engage in this sort of diplomacy. And also that if they do, if governments writ large do engage in polylateral diplomacy, it tends to be on issues of low politics, which Mm. means, you know, things like I don't know, humanitarian sort of issues, um, not high politics like security issues. But Mm. what we see in this case is that North Korean government was very much amenable (laughs) to this sort of diplomacy, partly because it very much suited its objectives at the time. And it was actually the high politics dimensions of this issue, because clearly North Korean government looked at this issue in terms of U.S. nuclear power, new U.S. nuclear arsenal. Um, so it, it had utility mm. for, you know, legitimizing its pursuit of nuclear weapons, even at times when people were starving, when there was a famine in North Korea, right. just to keep things stable internally, saying this is why we're doing this. Look what happened next door. You know, look at these pictures we're displaying of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Look at all the victims we have. Right. And it may sound like, oh, it was just 2,000 A-bomb victims, but think of all the attention that's been given to the abductees, which they were like 13 to 17. Mm-hmm. The number, you know, is, is actually very significant. I think. What what are the structural forces that can constrain activists in trying to achieve polylateral diplomacy? Yeah, well, I think Jeff Wiseman has argued that governments may sort of, I guess, shift in their openness to dealing with activists at different stages Mm. of the decision-making process. So obviously when Japan was open to normalizing negotiations with North Korea in the 1990s. And the early 2000s too. Yeah, that was a good time to incorporate them in. And it's not just 
in the case of North Korea, we've seen this. Even when Japan and South Korea have been having tensions decades ago, Japanese government again decided to use the South Korean A-bomb victim issue as like the low-hanging fruit. Mm. We'll, we'll give some concessions on this because no one really talks about this issue. There's no domestic costs, so yeah. we'll, we'll do something for them as a way to warm up the relationship. But then with the abduction issue and the, the huge sort of backlash that provoked in Japan, the Japanese government just walked back from this. It was just suddenly untenable to be making gestures to the yeah. A-bomb victims then when there's everyone was demanding progress on the abduction issue. So even though we do have these principles of you know, human rights being universal, clearly in practice, mm. they're not at all. <laughs> now, here we are almost 80 years after the dropping of the, the two atomic bombs. I assume most of the Pipokja are dead or close to death. Mm-hmm. Is this a matter that's finished or is it still ongoing? Well, yeah, I don't think we can say it's an issue anymore because it has been, you know, dropped by the Japanese government. It's not on any agenda. The activists, many of the activists are still alive. Some of them have have died already. Shogun's not the only one that's already passed away. And certainly, I just did some interviews this, oh, just late last year with two of the prominent activists. And they're still very much committed to doing something if the opportunity arises. If they were, the last time they were invited was 2018 and they went. Um, And if they're invited again today, they would go there there would be some victims still alive not many but what we've seen in the case of Japanese and South Korean A-bomb victims is there's a second generation of mm. victims and even in some cases a third generation people who inherited they're getting what cancers or other things inherited from their parents yeah because if you look at there's still a lot we don't know about right. how radiation affects cells but in many cases it caused mutations and things which meant that children were born with problems right And we also know from the field of epigenetics that children born to parents who went through significant trauma like the Holocaust or Mm -hmm. having an atomic bomb dropped on them, that they even inherit a sort of predisposition to secreting a lot of stress hormone Mm. at the the slightest problems. So there's all kinds of inherited problems, but the activists are quite hard on themselves and, and you know, speak about the fact that they failed because they didn't get the North Koreans the same level of redress that other victims get. But I think under the circumstances, what they achieved is remarkable. Yeah. Do you see right now, would you say there's any interest in either from either the Japanese or North Korean side in normalizing relations between the two countries? Well, no. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not the case. So I think in Japan, I think if you look at Prime Minister Abe and his very long administration, I mean, he really earned his political stripes as a hardliner mm, against North mm. Korea. And that sort of, you know, position has really taken root in Japan. You know, we, we're going to be hardline against North Korea and unless they make some progress on... I mean, recent Japanese sort of statements have indicated that we'll talk with the North Koreans without preconditions. But I think we all know what's going to happen when they come to the table. Japan's going to raise the abduction issue. North Korean's going to say, we've told you what we know. And Mm. Japan's going to say, we don't believe you. And it's going to fall apart. And so, I mean, the Kim... Kim Jong-un government has has also made it clear that they're just not interested in in dealing with the Japanese. And we saw in all the bilateral summitry that went on in recent years, Japan was locked out of it for, for that reason. Right. Well, it's a, a sad place to uh, to end it. I note that uh, Yi Gun, before he died, he published a uh, a memoir, both in uh, in Korean and in in Japanese. I don't have the title to hand now, but uh, that would be an interesting book. You've read that, obviously, in preparing yeah. your paper. It's called Pride, and I think he. I think that's the Japanese yeah. title. I think there's a. There's oh, a, I haven't looked at the a, Korean a, title. A, a Korean version that I, I I should have copied into my notes here, but obviously didn't. Oh no, here we go. It's called Naya Hiroshima Gongsenge Gil. Pyeonghwaegil, or uh, My Hiroshima, The Road to... uh, mm, Kind of coexistence. Yeah, coexistence, living together, uh, and The Road to Peace. Right. And I think the reason he called the Japanese one pride is because he was really proud of what he'd done. And I think the reason that he documented everything he did, even when I met him the first time, he bought a professional photographer to take a photo of us together, documented everything, because I think he knew that he'd achieved something quite significant and that one day people would reflect on that as as something important. It's a remarkable life story and, and thank you for bringing that to light and thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks a lot for having me.
that was Dr. Lauren Richardson. People can find her paper, The Forgotten Victims of the Atomic Bomb, North Korean Pipokja, and the Victims of Politics of Victimhood in Japan-DPRK Relations in the journal Pacific Affairs Online from 1st of March. And you can find her on Twitter at Lauren underscore ANU for Australian National University. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of this episode. If you have an NK News account and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can acquire about access and a free trial membership by writing an email to membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, etc. Thanks very much. Listen again next time. 